Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're gathering round for a fairy tale. Our guest is Angela Slatter, whose new novel, All the Murmuring Bones, takes us to a world where fairy tale traditions turn a damn sight darker, meaner, and more threatening than the kind that you know. These are definitely not the myths and legends of your childhood story hour. Angela's got a PhD focused on the subject of fairy stories and folk tales, and she wields that knowledge to write some of the most innovative and darkest revisions of the form. She's written a number of story cycles set in a bleak, haunted, mythical landscape, and All the Murmuring Bones is the first full-length novel to play in that sandbox. It's a story about power and magic and the dreadful lure of the sea, but it's also, like all the best fairy tales, a refraction of our own social reality. The battle against the patriarchy rages on, even here in Angela's magical land. Especially here, in fact, where Angela brings the fantastical into collision with the gothic to hideous effect. Week after week, this show has become a bit of a learning exercise for me, which is is great, and I hope you're getting something from it too. Angela gives a fantastic overview of the fairy tale tradition and its ongoing function in culture. It's a great conversation, and that's before we even get the murderous mermaids. I have to say that, for various technical reasons, the sound quality isn't as crystal clear on this one as I like it to be. Let's face it, when you're doing remote interviews from the other side of the globe and people are locked often in a single room, and I've got a 1999 level of Wi-Fi signal, these things can be a bit hit and miss. I've done my best with it, but please excuse the little bit of echo that is picked up. I have managed to edit out Angela's dogs, though, because they were very adamant about having their opinions heard. But anyway, enough from me. We're off to a magical land far, far away and once upon a time where the sea waits angrily. Let's talk scared. Hi, Angela. Thanks for joining us on Talking Scared. You're more than welcome. Whereabouts in the world do we find you today? Brisbane, Australia, sitting in front of a desk, and it's about uh, 35 degrees outside, and it's uh, 10 in the morning. It's midnight here, so yeah, you're the second Australian guest we've had on the show. We had Gabriel Bergmoser on before Christmas. It always gives a bit of an uncanny flair to recording, kind of me sitting here late at night, you there in the a.m. Yeah. How are things down under? I mean, we're all watching in envy over here as you go about your relatively normal lives. <laughs> Well, it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's relatively normal, and we, you know, but there are there are pockets of um, outbreak of the plague. Let's call it what it is. Uh, we've started the rollout of the vaccine, so hopefully, you know, things are on the up and up. Yeah, indeed, it's been a great way to map COVID. This podcast every week, I speak to a different pocket of the globe and find out how things are there. We've had our our root plan out of lockdown today. Boris gave us all a big pep talk, so we'll see how that goes, but supposedly by june we can all get back to our normal lives but as i say every week that's enough covid yeah (laughs) so tonight today for you we're all about discussing your new novel which is called all the murmuring bones and it's out on the 9th of march from titan books is that right it is um but i think they might have pushed the release date for the uk back to the 29th when um hopefully bookstores are open again Right. Basically, I, I found since I started this because of COVID, like release dates are in continual flux. Um, yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's a movable feast. But within a few weeks of listening to this, 
people will be able to get their hands on this book. So it's a slightly different angle for the show, actually, because it's a very fantastical novel rather than just a horror novel. What can you tell us? What do we need to know about this story? Well, I initially thought it would be a, a an historical novel, um, and I was badly mistaken. Um, it's, it's sort of a gothic fantasy. There's a, a young woman called Mirren O'Malley who's born into this um, decaying uh, house, big big old house that once had a lot of power and a lot of influence, um, and they're a family that made their money from the sea. Um, and she... She's at a point in her life where they're, they're opening her grandfather has died and she's sort of contemplating what life might be like when she's free and suddenly finds that she's got all these all these strange things and difficult people arrayed against her trying to stop her from, from just having some freedom. A bit of a, a road movie, a bit of a heist, um, a bit of a fairy tale, a bit of a, you know, gothic mystery uh fair bit of murder, all sorts. So it's it's kind of the royal sampler. Okay, I mean, you've covered the the gamut there a little bit. I mean, fairy tale is going to be a big focus of this conversation, as is the gothic. But to pick up on something you said right at the start there, this is not an historical novel. It's a, a fantasy novel and it's in a second world, you know, a, a, an entirely fabricated world. Am I correct in thinking that this is part of a fictional universe that you've played in before it is um oh gosh 2010 i think i published a collection with tartarus uh press in the uk called sourdough and other stories and it was that was sort of the the start of this world um which is partially inhabited by fairy tales um and it's it's recognizable as a kind of a timeless almost medieval place but you know sort of with mixes of of victoriana um and that kind of thing in it but again magic magic is accepted um but there's also the tendency of the the figure of the church to try and destroy it and try and shut it down so yes so i did sourdough and then a few years later i did the bitterwood bible um set in the same universe and that won the world fantasy award um and i have recently also finished um the tallow wife and other tales which sort of finishes off that what i I like to think of as a a three book cycle in that world and all the murmuring bones uh is in the same world and there's a, a crossover character that you will see in all the murmuring bones um called bethany lawrence and she features in the tallow wife and other tales so there's just all these little connections and one of the things i wanted to do with all the murmuring bones was retell some of the stories that i've told in the previous books um as though they're the fairy tales that the characters in the book have grown up with ah okay so it's yeah it's just sort of <laughs> digging my way into a very deep hole um, but um but trying to you know trying to create this world in full so yeah so that's where that started this is this is sort of the first novel in the world um so that's been exciting and challenging i always wonder when people start creating a wider universe when they do the tolkien thing do you feel like a, an irresistible pull to write in that world all the time um I do, but I mean, I I also like doing straight horror that's you know set in the modern day world and the modern time. Um, but that's that's the world that sort of sings to me, um, that that calls me back. 
and I do, you know, um, sometimes I, I've written stories. I wrote one called The Promise of Saints um, that was in J.S. Press's recent anthology and I, I wrote it in, the, in a, you know, a contemporary sort of situation first off and it didn't feel right and eventually it occurred to me that it wasn't in the right world. It was actually a sourdough story so I went over and I tweaked it um, and it fits in perfectly because that's, that's where it's meant to be. So, yeah, so there's definitely a pull. Um, but I try not to do it all the time. Do you have a name for the world that you've created? I just call it the sourdough world, which is not very um, original or exciting. You know, the main city in it is one called Lodellan, and my friend and fellow writer Lisa Hannett came up with that when I was I was looking for a name for the place because I'd sort of built this place and I hadn't given it a name. Uh, and there's you know there's all sorts of all sorts of other little towns around there. Um, that sound vaguely English, you know, Bitterwood, Quen's Landing, all that sort of thing. So that's that's kind of what I call it. Now you've made me feel like that, you know, it should have a proper official name for the world, but um, but it doesn't. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit of a sucker for kind of secondary um, creative worlds. But and I was reading this one, and I kept thinking like this reminds me of something, and and I just I could not get put my finger on on what it reminded me of, and then it dawned on me that. The thing that I think is closest to this, this world you've created is, is Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast. Oh, right. Yeah, it's this kind of grotesque fantasy scape. It's got like its own rules and conventions and hierarchies. But at the same time, it, it also really reminds me a lot of the traditional Gothic, you know, like Anne Radcliffe mm. and the Brontes and even Jane Austen with like the threat of the patriarchy and, and all of that yeah. stuff. Either in this book or in, in the world generally, did you have any direct inspirations when you're creating that sandbox to play? Um, I mean, gosh, because, you know, I've got a PhD in fairy tales and, um, and an MA in that as well. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's always the backdrop for me when I'm writing and that, that comes through. But also, you know, as a teenager reading um Wuthering Heights and Villette uh, and Jane Eyre and all of those, and I think they have all very much just embedded in the psyche. So that that always rises up when I'm writing. You know that there's this um, aspect of uh, of the Gothic that is just always there, and it's not it's not necessarily a, a dark house, it, it, but it's probably a threatening relative or something like that. Um, and the idea of secrets and that you have to find out secrets or, uh, you know, discover the truth of it or you're probably going to die. You might not like what you find out, um, but in in knowing the truth, you you can survive your, your story and your tale. And I think that's very much uh, a hallmark of the Gothic, whether it's, you know, your husband is, happens to have another wife in the attic. Um <laughs> Or something like that. But that's just something that I, I think I habitually dig into after a lifetime of reading books like that. Yeah, I I really grabbed that Bronte stuff straight off the page um, because it is so much about patriarchal authority and 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 the, the, the strictures placed upon women. Uh, but that also ties into the, the, the fairy tale, doesn't it? Because, you know, um, fairy tales are a have been through the ages as far as i'm aware a vehemently feminist form of storytelling a few weeks ago actually in an interview i, was, I spoke to julia fine and we briefly referenced angela carter 
Now, obviously, you've got a PhD in this stuff, so you know a lot more about Angela Carter than I do. Um, but in many ways, you know, she's seen as the queen of the revisionist fairy tale. Mm. And I know when I was doing academic stuff, everyone and their cousin was writing a, a PhD or a master's thesis on Angela Carter. And then it seemed like it, it's gone away a little bit. And then it's come back in the work of people like you and Kelly Link and Naomi Novik and Christina Henry and Isabel Yap. What's driving that secondary resurgence, do you think, of the revisionist fairy tale? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, partially I think it's it's feminism, partially it's me too. It's, you know, um, trying to shine a light on a lot of the, the crap in women's lives and the hypocrisy. Um, so you think it is a feminist issue then that's driving it primarily? I think so. I think so. But, you know, but I also think that, you know, fairy tales, uh, like most things in storytelling, um, come in cycles, they come in waves, you know, and, and they, depending on the time and the sorts of tales that we're telling ourselves and the sorts of tales we need to tell, um, I think we dig back and we find them. And, a bit, I mean, if, and you read Carter, you read uh, The Bloody Chamber, which uh, actually was part of the subject of my MA, that and Emma um, Donahue's Kissing the Witch um, as comparisons of how you write uh, female agency in fairy tales um you you know you sort of you look at some of those and and they're speaking very much to the time and she discovered feminism uh after her marriage <laughs> after her first first marriage that'll do it <laughs> yeah and it was the 70s and um and that's you know that's when she that's when she discovered it and found what she needed there, but also then started writing what she needed as well. Um, you know, you, that's that's particularly the thing with fairy tales is that there's raw material there and that's why they've been around for so long and you take what you need and you recreate a story from it. Um, and that's the story that you need to tell and you want to tell. Do you have a fairy tale that you go back to time and time again that speaks to you? Oh, gosh, I always particularly like... Little Red Riding Hood, but the the old one, the old Italian one before Perot got to it, um, when she doesn't have a red cap and she goes out into the forest and there's no, um, she's not really warned about anything. This is just what you did if you were a you know a kid in those times. And she goes to visit Grandma, um, and this is fairly gruesome. And the wolf is you know is dressed up and uh, convinces her to eat some of Grandma's flesh and drink some of Grandma's blood. But that's, you know, the symbol of, of the cycle of life, you know, and the, the young taking the old and that kind of thing. And the fact that she rescues herself. So the wolf's trying to convince her to get into bed. She says, no, I need to go to the loo. And so he said, oh, we'll do it in the bed. No, 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 I'm not going to do that. So he ties a rope around her and she goes out into the yard and then she ties the rope around the cherry tree and runs off and gets help. So she rescues herself. Um and I, I particularly like that level of um, independence and agency. And I think I probably always like to come back to that spirit in my heroines when I'm writing. Well, that, that's that's a great point because Mirren, your protagonist in this, you kind of thread the needle with her a little bit in that she's she's not in the, in the vogue for the out-and-out tomboy, mm. you know, the, the take-no-shit tomboy. She is quite very feminine. Yeah in some ways quite surprisingly so for for a feminist revisionist mm. f- fairy tale um i almost expected there to be more 
directly badass, but she's quite feminine but and quite emotional. But at the same time, she's a, a killer and she lies and she's ruthless. When you were constructing her, was it something that you gave a lot of time to, 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 to that balance or did it just kind of occur naturally? Oh, I think it just occurred naturally because I've, you know, um, I, uh, one of the things I've observed over the years is that, you know, the reasons women are injured and killed and raped and get into bad marriages is because we're told to expect less and we're also told be polite all the time. And being polite, you know, makes a particular kind of man think that he can get away with it, that you're not really saying no. Um, so I've, you know, I've often sort of thought women need to be more pragmatic about this and not worry about what people think of them. And I think when you, you look at Mirren, her upbringing, her grandmother in particular, is someone who taught her to strategize and to think about situations uh, and also to be able to pivot when she needs to, when, when something unexpected comes in. You know, the, the battle plan never survives contact with an actual battle, so you need to be um, adaptable and agile. And I also think, you know, I don't, I don't think your feminist heroine always has to choose to wear trousers and boots. Um, she can like dresses with pockets. You know, <laughs> that's, that's, that's all we really want, dresses yeah. with pockets. Um, and I thought she was... Interesting because she would adapt to a variety of situations. She'll, she'll protect those she loves, but she will not uh, hesitate to get rid of someone who's a danger to her or her people. There's, there's one scene with a particular green-eyed assassin <laughs> that I, I was kind of, it's a bit of a fist pump moment. I, I really, really enjoyed that. That was a, a turning point in the novel where I thought, oh, this is where I've got on board now with Mirren as a character I can really, really root for. Um, but it's interesting because you say like not all feminist heroines need to wear trousers and obviously quite right. I just think it says something. It speaks to the nature or the misunderstanding perhaps of feminism. This is a, a 37-year-old man here having a conversation about feminism. I'm way out of my depth. But it, it's to me, it speaks to the nature of feminism. That As I was reading it, I was expecting to find her eschewing all forms of you know femininity and, and just being a, a kick-ass character and in a way it was more refreshing that she yeah. wasn't if, if that yeah. makes sense because I've read so many variations on Elizabeth Salander by now oh god that I, I don't really need another one no. <laughs> um and, and I like that I like that she was rounded but bit of an on ongoing conversation I've been having because during February I've been kind of trying to trying to promote and celebrate Women in Horror Month by mm. speaking purely to women authors and, and something that's come up again and again is this this notion of likable or unlikable protagonists and I've asked every guest for like the last month about this on what their stance is because I have this theory that m men get to be anti-heroes women are forced to be unlikable yes. protagonists um, and I think Mirren is, is rich ground for a conversation. So what do you think about that? Do you think there's a double standard there? Um, well, I mean, because I, I also teach and one of the first things I, I say to students about characters is that your character does not have to be likeable, but they do have to be interesting. My heroines often, I think, you know, will cause people to go, oh, no, she's, a, she's an unlikable man-hater kind of thing. Well, no, it's not. It's not about being a man-hater it's about pointing at the world and saying hey this is wrong <laughs> you know? 
this is really wrong and we don't have to be polite about it all the time. So I think we've got a lot of work to do, but I th- but books like this and heroines like this, I think can help start changing attitudes. I have a bit of a unthinking aversion to, to whimsy, which sometimes puts me off books that play in in that fairy tale tradition yeah you you as i say you walk a tightrope with this world you create where it is very very mundane in some ways and and it's and, and there are strange details that are borrowed from our world um and then strange moments of the fantastic and it's quite a heady concoction and i was thinking all the way through when you're writing it like because obviously writing it for adults is a very adult mm. novel what's the technique when you are writing a something in a, in a fairy tale or folk tale tradition where you update it for adults how do you avoid going becoming too whimsical and kind of undercutting it all um i think when i was learning to write um and that you know that only i only made that decision when i was 37 that that was what i wanted to do um and then i had to learn how to write after a lifetime of reading was reading a piece that a friend of mine who's an academic, Kim Wilkins wrote, um, about how you embed the fantastic um, and how you get a reader to come along with you. And one of those techniques is to show them the mundane first, uh, show them the, the ordinary kind of details of the world before you introduce something fantastical. And then when you do introduce it, don't do it with a heap of fanfare flashing signs saying get your fantasy here just throw it in casually which is one of the things that kelly link does beautifully um if you read the fairy handbag that's one of those stories which sort of feels like a young adult um protagonist telling you the story of what what she does with her friends except it turns out that it's it's the fairy handbag that her grandmother owns and there are worlds inside the fairy handbag and the girl loses it and so you know, you get all this fantastic detail at the start about how she and her friends would go to the garment district and have have bets about if they could tell the colour of fabric from how it felt. And then there's, you know, then she throws in the fantastical details, but it's done very casually. Um, so you just sort of go, oh. And for me as a reader and a writer, I think that that sort of, I've made the reader comfortable I'm not making them so comfortable for so long that they get bored. Um, and that's, you know, that's that rightly thing of, well, you know, how long's a piece of string? How long can you can you do that with a reader? Um, so, and I just think it, it depends on the story and the kind of story. Um, and then you introduce the fantastical detail. And that was one of the things that I struggled with as a, as a writer was world building. Um, because I, you know, as a youngster, I had read all these incredible worlds. I'd read Tolkien, I'd read, you know, the space operas and Lawrence Jennifer, um, Tanith Lee, all of these incredible world builders. But, you know, that's really hard, building a world and, and keeping it in your head <laughs> and um, not stuffing it up or making a mess. But what I... I don't think I realised it until a bit later after I'd, I'd written and published a few fairy tales, rewritten fairy tales, was that the world was still close to our world and the thing that differentiated it was the magic. So making it a recognisable world, the, the, the household that Mirren lives in 
in Hobbs Hallow is recognisable to everyday readers. Um, it's it's like a gothic house kind of thing. But the things that differentiate it are the O'Malley Book of Tales, which, you know, has been written by members of the family, which are their own fairy tales um, that might be truth and might be lie or a little bit in between. Um, and then you've got the figure of the old servant, Maura, who teaches her little bits of magic and tells her little bits of tales. So they're the places where it de- starts to depart from the real world. And then when Mirren runs, you know, well, before she runs away from home, um, she encounters um, one of these magical creatures. And that's kind of the start of the fantasy element. So my method of world building is to keep it as close to a normal or or recognisable world as I can and then start to introduce those other things that remind the reader that it's not, this isn't Kansas anymore, Toto. I I have a bit of a a kind of protocol when I read books that I'm considering for the show. Basically, I, I get, I become aware of them and then I try and read it with as little information as possible. So I don't read the synopsis. I don't read um you know any press around it i just try and read the book so for the first probably 10 percent of this novel i didn't know it was in, it was in a secondary universe mm. i thought it was just set in some you know quirky part of ireland that i never heard of <laughs> yeah. um and then all of a sudden you've got these details that start to creep in and you're like oh okay and, and that's where it rattles you and, and that's where some of the, the the creepiness creeps in as well because at first you're, you're not quite sure where the land lies in terms of what's real and, and what's yeah. not. Um, and I, I really enjoyed that. A lot of the the culture and folklore that you're kind of raiding in this novel, and presumably in your wider sourdough stories, is broadly Celtic. It is. Uh, am I right? Yeah, you are. You, you riff a lot on mythology of Scotland and Ireland, the Selkies and stuff like that. Being from Brisbane... Australia what what drew you to to that cultural backdrop um yeah so they you know they were the things I was fascinated by as a kid and uh, my mum read me fairy tales as a kid so you know that's that's sort of the first they're the first stories that I heard um and that was what I you know I sought out I think most Australians uh often sort of look back for their heritage um, and most of us, most of us are descended from convicts um, who were Irish, or you know, political prisoners who were Irish, um, and the Scottish and the Welsh and that sort of thing. And that's you know that's my that's my background. One of my grandfather's father was Welsh, um, and they were coal miners, and they came out here. So I've also you know I, I put the mine in all the murmuring bones. That's in there that I've got. I've got another story somewhere in the back of my head, which I would really love to do, which involves coal mines and um, just digging into all of the Welsh, Welsh mythology of that um, and that kind of thing. So that's, you know, that's kind of where that starts for me, I guess. So I, I have a real interest and a real kind of nerdy love of of legends and myth and, and monsters. So reading this was a bit of a treat because you do touch on either the tradition of or your own version of a lot of these these creatures like I say like I want a selkie like you're, you're, the way you present a selkie in this is is great it both cleaves to and curves away from the tradition of, of selkies as these because am I right in thinking that selkies were like would take the form of handsome men 
or we'll take the form of horses and then would we'll, we'll then drown people in oh yeah the the kelpies yeah they would um they would oh is that kelpies that's where i've got mixed up yeah they're the kelpies yeah there's the selkies are the seal women you know so with the seal women um if you take their skins then they have to stay with you and be your wife um but if they find their skin then they're, they're off they're gone just to make a note then, when I'm saying I want a selkie, that sounds a little bit creepy. I meant the kelpie. Just just a note, note to listeners, I don't want to keep a woman because I've stolen her skin. I want a kelpie, which is a horse. Yeah. <laughs> Not after we've just talked about feminism. So. <laughs> Thank you for being patient with that. I don't know what, don't know what you were thinking. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the kelpie, you know, there's all this legend behind that that you know they would they would um either appear as a horse but and offer to you know ferry people across rivers or lakes and that kind of thing uh but if you looked carefully their feet face backwards their hooves face backwards um and what they were going to do was take you down and drown you because you were a canopy as far as they were concerned um you'd be someone's lunch and sometimes there's the occasional one where they're handsome men who, you know, they appear as handsome men to look for wives um, to take down to their undersea lair. And I, I kind of thought that, you know, I, I wanted my, my Kelpie to be quite gentlemanly and polite but still dangerous. And then there's, again, there's a body of myth that if you, if you can put a, a bridle on them then they have to do your bidding it's it's a kind of binding i sort of wanted the the encounter between him and mirren to be her making a fair deal because she's someone who's not been offered fair bargains in her life she's not ever been offered bargains really she's been told you will do this so i i like to think having suffered that herself she's not trying to impose it on someone else um, so she is trying to be fair for the most part in her life and her dealings with other people. So I, I really quite do like the Kelpie and he might appear somewhere else at some other point in another book. Oh, I was, I was hoping you'd say that because, yeah, those, those are my favourite parts of the of the novel. I just, I really, I just love that character. I'm just thinking off the top of my head now. You said a few things there, like the Selkies, you know, if you steal the, the skins, they, they then belong to you. With the Kelpie, if you can get a bridle on him, he, he falls under your dominion. It, it, it does seem like a lot of these folk traditions, are, they're all to do with control or the mm. loss of control. It, it does seem to me that a lot of these, these folk tales and fairy tales are our oldest horror stories. Absolutely. And... I just wonder, why do you think they are originally such a rich vein for horror? And why why do you think they've lasted so long in one form or another into the modern day as as resources for horror? Mm-hmm. Um, look, I think I think, you know, as you say, these these are the tales that were told around um, around firesides and don't go into the woods because the wolves will eat you is a warning tale, you know, and it's quite useful. Um, and it's also people in communities who were seeking explanations for things that, you know, they didn't know how weather worked or that, you know, they, they didn't know this or they didn't know that. So they made up stories to explain their lives. Um, and I think these have have stayed around. And if you look at their lives of, of folk tales that turn into fairy tales when adopted by the, you know, the French salons, um, uh, with Perot and the like, um, 
and then they get rewritten, changed, um, and they start to be used to reflect the society. Prose version of Little Red Riding Hood, which apparently I have always nag on, um, you know, finishes with the, basically the line that says, it was her own fault because if you're going to talk to hairy strangers in the woods, then little girls, you know, um, which is not the original the original intent of the story. Then when you come to the Grimm's, uh, the original versions are quite raw and more like the old-fashioned Little Red Riding Hood. When you get to like about edition seven of their book, they have been cleaned up uh, and there aren't any bad mothers in there, they're stepmothers. So, you know, the, the stepmothers are the ones because we don't want to scare the children if they think their parents might be the ones leaving them in the in the forest like Hansel and Gretel. Um, the voice of female characters is taken away from the younger female characters um, and the characters that talk most are the bold boys and the bad women, the bad stepwomen, and they're always punished. So then you've got this phenomenon of the um, of the chosen girl basically coming through and she's the one because she's quiet and she doesn't, uh, she waits for someone to save her, she will become the princess. So it's sort of a weird parallel with Carol Clover's final girl, you know, the, the, the good um, mm. virginal girl will defeat the yeah. monster in the end. Yeah, so you can you can see how those, you know, the changes in society are reflected in those stories. It's only when you mention all these names, Perot and Grimm, and, and presumably people before that who told these stories in a raw form, that you realise they've always been a evolutionary form of storytelling. Yeah. Because being somebody who's utterly unversed, I mean, my, ex- my, my knowledge of fairy tales extends to stuff I was told as a kid and Angela Carter. Um, you, you fall into a trap of thinking them as, of them as kind of fixed monoliths that are a story. And then you then think of stuff that you're doing and your peers as being kind of, you know, riffs on that. But in fact, your retelling of some of these folk tales is every bit as valid as them themselves, because they they were already retelling. Mm. I'd never thought of it as an ongoing evolution. If you know know what I mean, I always felt this something that ended and was now being played with. But I suppose it's not. It's just something that's carrying on. Um, and you know, the, if you if you're looking for a really good book on this, Marina Warner's um, From the Beast to the Blonde: Fairy Tales and Their Tellers. It's it's basically my bible. It's it's fantastic. It's so wide ranging um, and really well written. But it, with the old fairy tales, the, the old fairy tellers, they used to finish with something like, "This is the tale you asked for. I, I leave it in your hands." So it's like that idea of it being passed on and passed on to the next teller who will change it because, you know, we all embellish and change our tales and make them a bit more interesting and put our own spin on it. Um, And Emma Donoghue's Kissing the Witch, which is, uh, I think, um, 16 reworked nested fairy stories, finishes with this is the tale you ask for, I leave it in your mouth. So, again, it's like an evolution of it's not just your hands, it's your mouth. It's you will, you will speak this again and you will tell it and you will change it and you'll give it to someone else and they'll do the same thing. So it's just this chain of telling stories and that's one of the things that I love about writing, I love about fairy tales is this idea that I'm dealing with a pool, a body of work that's been, that's so old 
and has been reused and retold and I get the chance to retell it now. But there's a, a short story in All Memory and Bones, one of the tales from the O'Malley book, which is which is about the Selkie. And it's been published, you know, previously, I think 2006, called Skin. And that's one that's taught in a couple of universities in Australia because of its its structure as a short story because it's only 730 words long. Um, but it's got, you know, it's got the perfect structure. It's got everything in there. And that... I think the, you know, the first time someone said, oh, I've put this on my curriculum, I had a bit of a cry because it was like, oh, oh, I've, I'm, I'm contributing to the body of <laughs> stories. Yeah, I've written a fairy tale. <laughs> I've, yeah, I've, I've written a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale that's going out there and people still come back to me and, um, and comment on it, you know. So you sort of, you feel like, oh. Yeah. So to, to get to the kind of the frightening nucleus of this story, we've we've talked about the patriarchy and the fact that Mirren comes up against a, a number of quite unpleasant men who, you know, want her for all kinds of nefarious purposes, whether it's her wealth mm. or her body. That's one strand of the gothic, I would think. That's where all that is. The other thing that you do, and this is going back to talking about, you know, revitalising some of these fairy tale tropes, is you you give us a very different, very frightening version of the mermaid mm. or the, the mare, as you refer to them. Talk to me about that because you totally spin any Disney-fied idea of the mermaid <laughs> we may have on it on its head. Is that something that you've invented? Is there a tradition of that? You know, why are your mermaids so scary? Um, <laughs> you know, you sort of got this Greek mythology and the idea of sirens um, um, split between the sirens as bird women and then a bit later they become, uh, you know, a mermaid, so they've got tails and then a bit further on the um, the painters of the day didn't like that idea, so they gave them feet and they made them pretty. So the mermaid we've got now is the Disney Ariel uh, kind of thing. But reading and being read The Little Mermaid uh, by Hans Christian Andersen when I was little and hating it and absolutely hating it. And it's one of those stories that I have maintained a hatred for um, and I'm, I'm 53 and I still hate it with an absolute passion that has never dimmed. And so it was one of the fairy tales that I had never rewritten until a few years ago and I thought about The Sea Witch. So I wrote a... Um, I wrote a fairy story called The Little Mermaid in Passing and it's actually about the sea witch and how she came to be. And she is darker and more terrifying than any, you know, little mermaid. Uh, and I think she's probably the start of the sea queen in All the Murmuring Bones. Um, and I wanted something that was powerful as the sea and predatory. Because, you know, the sea's not a gentle kind of a, an element. It will, it will kill you and it doesn't care. And it's, it's also sort of unintentional in what it does, uh, which might be a bit more terrifying. And I thought, well, you know, what all these pretty myrrh are just around singing for sailors. No, that's not what they're like. And I thought that it would also be a lot more interesting if she's this powerful creature who has been overcome. Um, and what's she going to be like? after all this time that's kind of where she comes from she's not fluffy <laughs> no she's not fluffy she's she's quite frightening and 
what's brilliant about the, the, the mayor is this idea that all the waters of the world are connected. If you're near any kind of water, there is a chance that they may get you. And, and that, that ties into so much horror. I think like It Follows, the horror movie, where something will just inexorably come yeah. for you, no matter where you are, and it will get you. That you can be inland, but there's a river and a stream, and eventually this thing will 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 come mm. for you and get you. I, I really <laughs> liked it. It's made me look. It's made me look twice at, at like the lake that I walk my dog past every day. <laughs> Vying with the kelpie for my absolute favourite detail in this story. Um, there is really intriguing. Can we say character semi character? There's this life size doll. Yes. Um, that that has a kind of ancillary role in the story. She's not really the focus of anything, but she's she's um, in the background. And she's semi-sentient, semi-alive. It's all ambiguous whether she's got a soul, whether she's aware, whether she's got any kind of spiritual status. But she works with this great metaphor for the gender dynamics in the, in the story. I mean, there's one bit, there's a brilliant line where her owner, mm. who's a nice man, is asked about her and he's described as having, quote, no idea how old she is or anything about her inner workings. And I just thought, like, you know, like every man, <laughs> basically, has no idea about the inner workings of women. That, to me, felt like a wholly novel idea. Where did that come from? I'm just asking from personal curiosity now because it, it, it leapt off the page to at me as a as a really intriguing detail. She's she's kind of a mix of two things in um, the collection Sourdough and other stories. There is uh, there's a story called A Porcelain Soul, um, which are about the the toy makers guild and the way they make these dolls for you know for rich people is that they take a little bit of their own soul and slice it off and put it inside this doll um so you can you can only have a career as a you know a toy maker for a limited amount of time or there's not going to be much of you left because all the membrane bones like in my in my very wibbly uh wibbly wobbly time stuff um all the memory bones is sort of set at the end of this you know this other cycle with the other books um this is a long time later and the the doll makers guilds have been gotten rid of um because the church didn't like them so there's this you know full life-size doll that's um automaton really and um a friend nikki Sulway wrote a book called Rupetta a few years back and that actually came out from tartarus as well and Rupetta is a um is an automaton that was built like fully fully functioning and fully sentient so it's it's kind of a little bit of a nod to nikki's rupetta but also like a a bigger version of of the dolls with a sliver of soul in it um who who you know i i actually find that quite terrifying that there's only enough in there to make you aware vaguely aware of things but you don't have enough life to move and to be to make your own decisions or to walk away from something you don't like. You know, she's she's put in a box and she's carted around. Um, but initially, that idea came from an essay by Rilke um, on dolls as kind of a void that you throw love into, and they never love you back. Uh, <laughs> I've always thought those, you know, that these kinds of figures 
in the story are a kind of a metaphor for that um, that idea of the void that you throw love into and you can never know if they love you back. Anyway, that might just be a bit sad. Well, no, I mean, it is a very sad book. It's, it's a book where a lot of the horror is in the implication, like you just said about, you know, when you think about that idea, she's got enough soul to be aware, but not enough to move or anything like that. And and that that that's the horror of this novel. I mean, it's on all kinds of horror lists of books to look out for in twenty twenty one. But I think a lot of people reading it at face value may not see it as a horror novel; it's just a dark mm. fantasy novel. But if you if you tug on any of these strings that you've woven, that there is so much darkness in this world from from the mayor to the automaton to the, the numerous complete wrongans that Mira meets on yeah. her journey. Yeah, it is. It, 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 the most fascinating thing about it for me, and it's the last thing I'll say, is that it, it brings home to you the capacity for darkness in stories that we think of as tailored for children. Um, and that, yeah, that I think is just a, an interesting thing to think about. What's next for you? Do you have any ideas, any plans? Uh, I am trying to finish uh, the second book for Titan, which is called Maud, um, which uh, yeah, I flippantly keep describing as um, a fairy tale Frankenstein. But <laughs> it's um, again, it's it's got the the gothic elements in it, and it's got a character called Asher Todd who uh, comes to a remote grand house to be their nanny and governess to the to these three kids um but all is not as it seems so i'm working on that and i am working on finishing a novella for uh maria reagan of the absinthe imprint of ps publishing and that novella is called the bone lantern and it's three interlinked short stories and a frame tale around it um about a character called Selka, who uh, who interestingly enough uh, featured in the story I was talking about, A Porcelain Soul, and she's also a character in a novella that I did for Tor.com a few years back called Of Sorrow and Such. She's one of those characters that I kind of can't can't get rid of, so I make them long-lived and, and give them a really long story arc across three different books. So <laughs> this will be the fourth. So this is your this is your Marvel yeah, universe. Yeah, it is. Isn't it it really? is Marvel Yeah. What was the novel called again? I missed the title of it. The novel is Morewood at the moment. That's what it's called. Um, it's the the, yeah, the the novel currently known as Morewood. And is is that next year? Are we looking at? Yeah, that is next year. That will be out in twenty twenty two. Yeah. I will look forward to that. Um, all that's left today is to ask you the four questions that I close each interview with, yep. if that's okay. Rapid fire stuff, this just throw me the first thing that comes to mind. Question one, this should be interesting from you. What was your gateway to horror? Well, I mean, probably fairy tales as a, you know, as a kid, but later as a teenager, I started reading Richard Lehman and Stephen King um, and the like, Sean Hudson. Anything that had a lurid horror cover, I kind of went for those in the library. And I was also very much an unsupervised reader, which I suspect my parents regret now quite a lot. <laughs> so I read everything. Um, so, yeah, so that's... 
that's kind of my gateway. I have happy memories of reading Sean Hudson's Slugs. Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and Richard Lehman that I read yes. way too young and has has left me marked. I mean, yeah, Richard Lehman doesn't get enough love. I think. I think he's been he's been kind of forgotten about. I mean, his books are very pervy, but they. Uh, yeah, when you're 14 and reading them, they are an eye-opener. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, um, um, If you could recommend one book to our listeners, what would it be and why? Oh, it would be, uh, because, you know, like most people, it's it's always the, the one that you read most recently, um, Alex Harrow's The Once and Future Witches, um, which, yeah, it's out now. Um, and it's sort of... Feminism, fairy tale, witchcraft, suffragettes, um, uh, equal rights um, in a in a reworked Salem, um, and it's just utterly, utterly amazing. So that's all I will say. But go and find it. I mean, it's, it's hard to miss. I mean, you go on any kind of social media, any kind of bookstagram or booktube, and that book yeah. is everywhere at the minute. Rightly so. I think I'm one of the few people in the West world who hasn't read it. So, yeah, thank you for the recommendation. What piece of advice would you give to a fledgling author? Network, which I know is a, you know, feels like a dirty word to a lot of us. It's not about, you know, handing out your business card. It's it's about building mutually beneficial relationships. Do favours for people if you can. I'm really interested in building a supportive writing community because I didn't really find one when I first started. Um, so I like to think that maybe I will leave it in a better state than I found it. Also, I think I'd... You know, they're, they're, at the moment, horror is having a resurgence. Um, but keep in mind that these things are cyclical. You know, there was this huge hit in the in the eighties where you know all the publishers were buying all of the all of the horror novels because Stephen King was selling like mad. But um, it didn't last. So try not to write something that's just about what's about now, because uh, there's a lot of people with vampire novels that you know think they're still going to ride the twilight wave and they're not uh everything goes in you know goes in a cycle so just write a really good book don't worry about <laughs> the subject matter and that's that's the main thing i think that is all great advice in terms of the networking if if you are a a fledgling writer and you want to network i recommend starting a podcast yeah <laughs> You meet lots of interesting writers who are willing to talk to. You get a great support network, yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't do this because I'm nice. <laughs> this, is a, this is a calculated move. <laughs> um, my, my last question, what truly scares you? Gosh, um, I've been thinking about this and I... I think what I'm going to do is is go back to the moment when I first read Dracula. Um, so I was about 15. I was in high school. I was reading it late at night, as you do, probably under the covers with a torch because uh, I was meant to be asleep. And finally sort of putting it aside because I had to go to school the next day and having a dream about being in Castle Dracula on the battlements, in the moonlight, just, you know, sort of looking out over the forest um, and the river below and being utterly terrified with 
no actual threatening um, thing being around, but knowing that, you know, Dracula is somewhere um, and just I think that was one of the most powerful things I've ever learned is that you can be terrified without having the monster in front of you. Um, and I, I still remember waking up um, covered in sweat and heart, you know, beating like nobody's business, unable to breathe because of the sheer terror of this moment. And I took the book and stuffed it, you know, in my sweater drawer and left it there for two months and was getting um, <laughs> a lot of overdue notices from the library. <laughs> Where is our book? What have you done with it? And it took me that long to go back and start reading it again. Um, so that's that's probably the most scared I have ever been for no reason whatsoever, apart from what a book did to me. So, yes. Nothing better than when a book does that to you. It's happened a few times to me recently where a book has got under my skin and made me feel quite yeah. panicky and quite uncomfortable. And it's it's a weirdly uh, exhilarating feeling. It's, it's something that I hate at the time, but... I, I, yeah, I think it's the, it's the greatest testament to a, to a book sometimes that it can do that to you. Yeah, it is. You know, yeah, and, and when you're writing, it, you're writing what if, and then when you're a reader and something scares you, even though you know it's in a book, there's still that question that echoes your mind, but what if, you know, what if it's not the mm -hmm. dog licking your hand kind of thing? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, on that note... All I shall say is the best of luck when this gets released, whether it's the ninth or a bit later. I think everyone's going to love it. And um, Angela Slatter, thanks for talking scared. You are more than welcome. Thank you for talking to me. So every day is a school day, right? I had no idea that fairy tales were such changeable beasts. I always assumed that Red Riding Hood was set in stone and never considered any of this stuff as an evolutionary tradition. Listening to Angela was like being back at uni with the best lecturer getting really into the stuff that interests them. All the murmuring bones was a departure for me. As I mentioned in the conversation, I'm not one for reading whimsy and fairy tale generally. Even Neil Gaiman can go too far into like the mist of quirkiness for me. But this one was good. It was grounded, it was inventive, and it was surprisingly nasty. Every time you think the book is settling into a whimsical groove, there's a murder or a monster or a hideous revelation. It kept me very much on my toes, and the mythology that Angela creates around the mayor and the sea queen is brilliantly dark. Our conversation has also left me with a wealth of reading and research to do, each of the books that Angela mentioned is listed in the show notes, including the other books that play in the same world as all the Murmuring Bones. Do check them out if you like this book. I've started reading the Sourdough Collection in between my weekly reading for the show, and yeah, it's really good. I hope the sound quality was okay for you. That is about as degraded as I ever want the audio to get, so don't worry. But, in fact, if you've listened this far, I'd be really interested to know what you thought about it. Was this a reasonable listen experience for you? Did you find it hard work or unpleasant? Let me know. It will be really good to kind of gauge your baseline. As ever, do get in touch for other, more positive reasons too. For example, what books have you enjoyed so far this year that I haven't covered? 
If you let me know what I've missed in hardback, I'll try and get the author on around the time of the paperback release. Or if I've missed some independent titles that you think could do with some promotion, let me know. As this show goes on, I want to start focusing and featuring more on independently published books. I think it's only fair to give a bit back to the horror community in that way. Or if there's anything else you want to talk to me about, you can reach the show on Twitter at TalkScaredPod or by email directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. And that website is coming soon. I've got the brother-in-law developing it. He's a whiz. It's just a matter of time. Nothing much more for me to say this week, to be honest, except that I'm really excited for the next episode. Katrina Ward is coming on to discuss The Last House on Needless Street, and I'll say it again for about the 30th time, it's the best horror novel written by anyone, anywhere, in a long time. I can't wait to take it apart and put it back together again. But, until next week, keep your eyes on the lakes and rivers, be nice to fish, leave a trail of breadcrumbs and avoid old women bearing apples, read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>